0: Happy Halloween, Crimaholics! It's Holly, and I am here for a special Halloween episode. Halloween is my absolute favorite holiday, and I told Kinsey that I have got to do an unexpected episode for all you true crime lovers for Halloween. More than 140 million Americans will celebrate Halloween this year. 53% plan to decorate their homes, and 46% plan to carve a pumpkin. The estimated total spending for 2020 will reach $8.5 billion and the average consumer will spend around $92.12 on decorations, candy, costumes, and more. The history behind Halloween dates back long, long ago, as most of you know, with immigrants from Scotland and Ireland bringing the holiday to the United States. Commercialization of Halloween started in the 1900s and Halloween costumes began appearing in stores in the 1930s with the famous phrase, trick-or-treat, starting in the 1950s. Today's episode, we are taking it back to Halloween night in 1974. This is the story of the Candyman. In Pasadena, Texas, in 1974, there was a family called the O'Brien family. In this family was Ronald and his wife, Deneen, and their two children, Timothy, who was eight, and Elizabeth, who was five. Ronald O'Brien was a fairly likable man. Most people had nice things to say about him. He was a deacon at the Second Baptist Church, where he also sang in the church choir, and he was an optician at Texas State Optical. And he was also in charge of a local bus program. So Ronald was a pretty well-known staple in his community back in 1974. The night of October 31st, 1974 was a cool and damp night, a mist hung in the air that was fitting for a spooky night of Halloween. Ronald set out with Timothy and Elizabeth to go trick-or-treating with some church friends. Timothy was dressed as a character from Planet of the Apes. This movie had just came out and it was a super popular costume back in 1974. Ronald took his kids over to Jim Bates' neighborhood because apparently they lived in a more upscale neighborhood, so they thought that their candy scoring would be a whole lot better. Jim and Ronald had it arranged to take the kids together for a few weeks. Ronald would walk the kids to the door, as many parents do, while trick-or-treating, and Jim waited patiently on the sidewalk. Everything was going normal. The kids were enjoying trick-or-treating, and they were collecting way too much candy, which we all know is quite normal. Eventually, they come across this house, and at this house, all of the lights were turned off. And as we all know, this is typically a sign that means one of two things. They either aren't passing out candy at all, or the candy is now all gone. But for whatever reason, Ronald was adamant that they go ahead and ring the doorbell. So they go up there, they ring the bell, and they wait. But nobody comes to the door. The kids start to get impatient wanting to continue to the next house to keep collecting candy. Jim and the kids start heading towards the next house but Ronald sticks back at the dark house and says he's going to keep waiting to see if people eventually come to the door. Not long after that, Ronald catches back up with the group, and he is not empty-handed. According to Ronald, the homeowners eventually opened up the door and handed him five pixie sticks. And I'm going to assume that most people know what a pixie stick is, but I don't even know if these candies are still made. But if you don't know what a pixie stick is, it is a tube that is filled with a powdery candy, which is pretty much just like straight sugar. Like I said, I don't even know if they make these candies anymore, but they were a staple in my childhood, and I absolutely loved when I got them while trick-or-treating. So Ronald has these pixie sticks that he was given by this homeowner, and he gives each one to the kids. And then he hands the fifth and final one to a church boy he recognized that walked by. The group continues on a little longer until the mist that hung in the air turned into a full-blown rain. They called it a night, and everyone went home. Before bed, Ronald allowed each of his children to pick one piece of candy. Timothy picks the pixie stick. According to an article published by The Statesman, Timothy had a hard time getting this pixie stick open because it was closed with a staple. Now, why Ronald thought that it would be a good idea to just go ahead and pop this staple off and give it to his kid anyways is beyond me, but that's exactly what he did. Timothy poured it into his mouth, and instantly he complained that the candy tasted bitter and just not normal. And Ronald grabbed some Kool-Aid and just said, Here, you know, wash it down. It was probably old or expired or stale. Within minutes, little Timothy was sick, and he ran to the bathroom where he began vomiting and convulsing. Ronald apparently scooped his son up and held him until he went limp, at which point he called 911. An ambulance came and began rushing Timothy to the hospital, but it was too late. He died while en route. It hadn't even been a full hour from the time that Timothy ate that pixie stick to when he died. The news on Timothy spread like wildfire, and the people in the community began to panic that they had gotten some poison candy too. This was back before checking your candy was even a thing which I never knew a time in my life when my parents didn't check my candy, and I, of course, always check my own children's candy, but back in 1974, there was this trust in communities, and you didn't fear things like someone purposely poisoning or hurting your child. Parents began throwing their kids' candies away or taking them to the police station to turn it in for inspection. When an autopsy was conducted on Timothy, they found cyanide in his system. According to an article by Medium.com, when a pathologist tested the actual pixie stick that Timothy ate from, he said that it had contained enough cyanide to kill two adults. Authorities contacted the families in the neighborhood that they had been trick-or-treating and letting them know that if any of their kids received one of these pixie sticks to turn it in to the police. They eventually were able to locate all five pixie sticks, and no other child had ate theirs. Police began questioning people in the neighborhood, asking about what kind of candy they gave out, and nobody admitted to giving out any pixie sticks, and the people in the neighborhood really started becoming suspicious of Ronald. The people in the neighborhood really put pressure on police for them to demand Ronald to tell them which house he picked up these pixie sticks from, since it was him who passed them out to each child. When first questioned, Ronald claimed that he just couldn't remember which house it was. Which is funny because, remember, he made up this whole big story to Jim about wanting to wait to see if this person answers the door even though they don't have their lights on. And then they eventually magically answer and they give him the pixie sticks. I feel like if that was a legitimate story that he would have remembered exactly which house it was. Police were suspicious about his claims of not remembering, but they gave him the benefit of the doubt and they walked with him up and down the two streets that they had trick-or-treated on three whole times, hoping somehow one of these houses would stick out to be the house. Finally, Ronald pointed to the house that had all of the lights off that he stayed behind at. He also couldn't give a description of the man that gave him the pixie sticks because he claimed he only opened the door just enough to stick his hand out holding those cyanide laced pixie sticks. Police got in contact with the owner of the house and his name was Courtney Melvin. Courtney Melvin was questioned about the Pixie Sticks, but he claimed he didn't know a thing about them. He told police that he wasn't even home on Halloween because he was working until 11 p.m. as an air traffic controller at the William P. Hobby Airport. Police were able to confirm his alibi, and he was ruled out as a suspect. They began looking harder at Ronald. His story wasn't adding up, and it just seemed off. What they learned was that Ronald was in debt, and it was a lot of debt. He was in, over his head, $100,000, which back in 1974 was a hell of a lot of money. And according to the Medium.com article, $100,000 in 1974 equates to about $520,000 in today's money. So that's a lot of money. Not only was Ronald in debt, but they also began looking into his personal life. They realized that he had a hard time holding any job for any amount of time. In the 10 years before Timothy was murdered, Ronald had worked 21 different jobs and was about to lose his current job too. They also learned that his car was about to be repossessed and his home was about to be foreclosed on. This is not all that the police found. What they found next sent chills up their spines. Ronald O'Brien, in the months leading up to Timothy's death, had taken out life insurance policies on both of his children that were extremely high for children. He had taken a total of $60,000 out on life insurance for them. Not only that, but on November 1st, Ronald was calling into the insurance company to see about his payout on little Timothy, who, mind you, hadn't even been dead for a full 24 hours. The final nail in the coffin that drove police's suspicion out of the park was just a few days before Halloween. Ronald had purchased cyanide at a chemical supply store in Houston. On November 5, 1974, Ronald O'Brien was arrested and charged with capital murder and four counts of attempted murder. Ronald maintained his innocence despite the pretty solid evidence against him. Ronald's trial began just six months later and had many close people in his life testify against him in court. Two key witnesses were the sales clerk at the chemical supply store who said Ronald asked if he could purchase cyanide, and a chemist who claimed that in 1973, Ronald asked him how much cyanide would be needed to kill someone. Ronald's trial lasted about a month, and after the prosecution and the defense rested their case, it only took the jury 46 minutes to decide that Ronald O'Brien was guilty on all five charges. In addition to that, it only took the jury 71 minutes to decide his fate. Ronald O'Brien would be put to death. This story became known nationwide, and Ronald was dubbed the Candyman. Ronald was sent off to prison to await his execution in Huntsville, Texas. His execution was scheduled for August 8, 1980. However, his attorney was able to successfully petition for a stay of execution. A second date was scheduled for May 25th, 1982, but again, it was postponed. A third date was scheduled for October 31st, 1982, which was the eighth anniversary of Timothy's death. And again, his execution was postponed. Finally, on March 31st, 1984, with over 300 people outside of the prison, Ronald O'Brien was executed just after midnight by lethal injection. When the signal was given that he was dead, the crowd roared and began chanting trick-or-treat. Ronald O'Brien maintained his innocence until his final breath. In his last words, he said, quote, I forgive all and I do mean all. Those who have been involved in my death, God bless you all. And may God's best blessings be always yours. Crimaholics, if you're not already a part of our podcast discussion group on Facebook, be sure to find us at Crimaholics Podcast Discussion Group and join because that is where we share all pictures and information about cases we cover as well as sharing all things true crime. Also, be sure to like us on Instagram at crimeaholics.podcast. I hope you all have a wonderfully spooky, safe Halloween, and be sure if you're taking your little ones out trick-or-treating to check their candy. Until next time, crimeaholics, be aware and take care.